0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. As we... Good morning everybody. As we're nearing the conclusion of this 15-month journey through the New Testament Gospel of John, it's important to note that the events described in John chapters 19 and 20 are the central events in all of human history. And with that in mind, I want to jump right in. John chapter 19, starting at verse 31. Remember, Jesus has just died on the cross. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the body's taken down. So this is a problematic passage. It's a bit disturbing, honestly. Let me explain it. Once a year for one week, the Jewish people would celebrate something called Passover. And they were right to do so. They look back in history at a time that they were in bondage in Egypt, they were enslaved. And they call out to God for deliverance and God answered their prayer. In his kindness and mercy and grace and love, God delivered them out of bondage into freedom and promise. And so for one week, once a year, they would celebrate that. God's kindness and love. Well, once a week for one day, the Jewish people would recognize something called the Sabbath. Okay, and the Sabbath was a commandment that God gave to his people that said this. Hey, every seven days, take a day off. Take a day off. You were meant to go 24-7, 365. No matter what the social media influencers tell you, God said, you're not built that way. You're not. You need to take a break once in a while. And so as they recognized the Sabbath, what they were also recognizing is the kindness and love and mercy and grace of God. God said, hey, you can take a break. I'll look after you. It's going to be okay. So this passage here talks about a special Sabbath. A special Sabbath. In other words, this is the Sabbath day of Passover week. Special Sabbath. And so the Jewish religious leaders say, you know what's really wrecking the vibe here? You know what's really wrecking the vibe as we're trying to celebrate God's mercy and grace and kindness and love? What's really wrecking the vibe is all those bodies hanging on the crosses. <laughs> you know, it just kind of wrecks it. So Pilate, could could you get the bodies down like especially that one body you know jesus jesus christ the son of god we orchestrated his death the jewish religious leaders would have said we we pretty much orchestrated his death and now he's kind of wrecking the vibe because this is what we're trying to do we're trying to celebrate the kindness and love of god here you know and we had jesus killed he said he was the messiah We didn't have him killed because we didn't believe him. We had him killed because we did believe him. He's going around, he's talking to everybody about the love and the kindness and the mercy and grace of God and it totally threatened our power and our privilege and our prestige. So we had him killed, the son of God. And now he's wrecking the vibe as we try to celebrate the love and kindness of God. Does that seem a little off to you? I was... Asking myself this week, how does somebody get there? Looking back some 2,000 years later, how do you get to the point where you don't see the idiocy of that statement? We're trying to celebrate the love and kindness of God here, and the guy on the cross, the one whose death we orchestrated, he's wrecking the vibe. And I got to thinking, I think it happens step by step, you know. Like maybe it starts when your image becomes more important to you than your actual. That would be a problem. Or, or maybe it's when you start to focus more on the masks that you wear than the person who you are. That would be a problem. Or when all of a sudden it matters way more to you, the reputation you have, than the character you possess. That would be a problem. Every once in a while, I'll have somebody come up to me and they'll say, Mike, man, you're really real when you talk, you know? You tell stories about yourself sometimes that don't make you look real good. Why do you do that? Well, it's a good question. There's a few reasons why I do that. Here's number one, when you speak in front of people as much as I do, you kind of have a need for funny stories. You know, and when you're as quirky as I am, you find that you yourself are an endless supply of funny stories, so it works out really, really well. Now, the second reason I, I do that is because I heard a long time ago that when you talk about your dysfunctions, it actually helps. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now, you know? It's like, it's like therapy. So to the hundreds and thousands of people that listen every week, I want to tell you thank you so much. It's really making a difference. I think I'm a little bit less weird than I was a little while ago, so thank you for that. But here's the third reason. It's by far the most important. I've seen a lot of people standing on stages just like this. Speaking in venues just like this. And then something happens and you realize, oh wait, their image was nothing like their actual. The masks that they were wearing did not resemble the person who they are. And, And I don't just find that problematic, I find that real scary. I don't wanna go there. Years ago, when I would speak, I would tell stories about growing up. Me and my best buddy, Grant King, I got a million of those stories, I could tell them all day. I would tell stories about myself as a teenager, just over a decade now, you know, and... Um, <laughs> but when I was 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, I mean, I could tell those stories forever, there's a lot of them. And every once in a while, I still do when I feel like it's the right time. However, over the last few years, I felt God repeatedly calling me to tell stories, not from 25 years ago, but sometimes from 25 minutes ago. I don't wanna be the guy that stands on a stage like this, pretending to be someone he's not. I just don't. Like, I've been waiting for an opportunity ever since last summer to tell you guys about the time that I, that I almost beat up some mean old guys on a golf course in a Soyuz. No, it really happened. I really did, and, and, and I think, honestly, the, the only thing that kept me from beating these mean old guys up was just the headline that popped up in my head, you know, Chilowat Pastor wraps nine iron around neck of mean old guy at a Soyuz golf course. It just doesn't sound good, you know? Now, I, I, I tell you that because remember last week? Last week, I got up here and I said this. I said, hey, your validation and your worth is completely established by the fact that Jesus loves you. That's so true. I, I believe that up here. No, I really do. That, that my validation and my worth, all I need to know is that Jesus loves me and that's enough. But sometimes when a mean old guy in a golf course is saying mean stuff to me, it makes me sad and insecure and kind of worthless. And I felt like punching him in the head. So I thought I would just mention that to you. And I would rather run the risk that if few of you get up right now and leave and say, I can't go to church where a guy, the pastor is punching old, I didn't actually punch him. It's talking about punching old guys in the head, then all of a sudden, a year from now, you go, wait a minute, Mike, you are nothing like the person you said you were. So now let's talk about you. How would you get there? How would you get to be somebody who the masks that you wear are nothing like the person you are? Well, it it might start here. When you're wrong, you just don't admit it. That would be a problem, right? Or how about this, when you hurt somebody You just don't apologize. Or you have this very carefully crafted social media image, but it doesn't really bear any resemblance at all to the life that you live and the person you are. Or you tell your kids about the good old days, but you don't tell them about the times that the good old days weren't so good. That would be a problem. Or how about this, sometimes you gossip, and you tell a story about you and another person, and you're trying to throw that other, other person under the bus, and you just change the facts a little bit, right? So like, you're just a complete saint in the story, and they're just a complete sinner in the story. That would be a problem. So these religious Jews are like, hey, these guys hanging on the crosses, they're just, I don't know, they're just wrecking the vibe. We're trying to celebrate God's kindness and love now, so can you get them down? And so the Roman soldiers did. What the Roman soldiers would do at that time is they would take a mallet or a heavy iron rod and they would break the legs of the person hanging on the cross. See, the way a person died on the cross was normally asphyxiation. Because when you're hanging on a cross by your arms like that, you can't expand your ribcage to breathe. And the only way that you could do that is for the people on the cross is they would push off on the nail that was driven through their feet into the cross, they would push off on that nail in order to expand their ribcage and take a breath. Incredibly painful, but you did it just so that you could breathe. And so when the Roman soldiers came by and broke the legs of those hanging on the cross, it greatly increased the speed of their death and they could clear the crosses. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So they arrive at the criminal that was crucified on one side of Jesus. He's still alive. They break his legs. They go to the criminal on the other side of Jesus. He's still alive. They break his legs. They come to Jesus. It seems like he's already dead. But they got to be sure, you know? Like, for the Romans, crucifixion wasn't just an execution, It was a warning, it was a deterrent. It was a way of the Romans saying, yo, you mess with the Roman Empire, this is what happens to you. So they couldn't afford, they couldn't take the chance of pulling someone off of the cross who wasn't already dead. So they thought that Jesus was dead, but just to make sure, they drove a spear through his side and into his heart. And out of the membrane around his heart flowed blood and water, which shows us this, that the spear that would have killed him showed that he was already dead. See, when blood and water flows out of the membrane around your heart, it shows that you've dealt with something called hypovolemic shock, which is just a fancy way of saying, not enough blood. Not enough blood in the body. In the hours before Jesus was crucified, he was beat almost to death. He was whipped until the flesh would have been hanging from his back like ribbons. He had a crown of, thorn sho- crown of thorns shoved down upon his brow digging into his scalp and causing him to bleed more. He was forced to carry the cross of his crucifixion through the city of Jerusalem for miles. At one point, Jesus stumbled and fell. His arms would have been tied to the crossbeam at that point, and so he would have had no ability to brace himself. So he would have fall face, fell face first onto the cobblestones with a 150-pound cross beam driving his face into the street, which would have caused more blood loss. See, what happens when you lose that much blood is your body begins to starve. Like, your body needs the nutrients that your blood supplies, and so your heart does the only thing that your heart can do at that point. It just begins to beat faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. faster. Which eventually causes pericardial effusion, which is fluid in the membrane around your heart, specifically blood and water it always results in cardiac arrest so the spear that was driven into jesus side the spear that would have killed him revealed that he was already dead and revealed how he died the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I want to read you those first, that first verse again. This is John writing it. John says this about himself. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. John says, I was there. He's adamant throughout John chapter 19 again and again. I was right there. I was right there. I saw it, right? Jesus looked at me and he said, hey, John, look after my mom. I was right there, John says. I'm telling you the truth. This testimony is true. I was there. I saw it. I saw him breathe his last breath. I saw the spear driven into his side, the spear that would have killed him but revealed that he was already dead. John says, this is true. I'm telling you the truth. He's adamant. And I believe there's two reasons for that. Number one, you gotta remember that at the point that John is writing his gospel, he's an old man already. Years and years have passed since that event, since watching Jesus die on the cross. And I wonder whether in his own life or in the life of others around him, he's noticed that over time, we can forget the power of the cross. Over time, we can think back on the cross, and it's not as powerful as it once was, you know? and we're not as grateful as we once were, and we're not as full, as, full of faith as we once were. And John says, look, at, look at, I'm an old dude now, so listen to me, I was right there. I saw everything. I saw him breathe his last breath. I saw everything he went through for you and for me. I saw it. Don't lose the power, don't lose the faith, don't lose the gratitude. And I believe there's another reason why John was so adamant because he wanted to address skeptics throughout his history there have been skeptics regarding the story of Jesus they would suggest it's just that it's a story the whole thing is made up they'll just be one of three things number 1 that Jesus actually existed that Jesus actually died that Jesus actually rose again so over the next two weeks i want to just take a few minutes and i want to discuss those things with you so number 1 did Jesus actually exist Now, there are many scholars, both inside and way outside the church, that would tell me it's a waste of time to even talk about this. It's so obvious historically that Jesus actually existed. But I want to address it anyways, because John seems to think it's important. So if John thinks it's important, I think it's important. So let's talk about that. Jesus actually existed. First reason I can give you is this, that the Bible, the Bible is the most accurate and reliable source we have on ancient history. Specifically, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the New Testament. It's the most accurate, reliable source that we have historically. It meets the test of corroboration, of clarity, of consistency. It's completely accurate, completely reliable. Now, there are those who will say though, oh, wait a minute, Mike. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Ever heard that? You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. That sounds good, right? The problem with it is that while it sounds good, it's completely nonsensical. And I'm not looking to be mean-spirited here, but I want to kind of drive towards the truth just like John did. I want to get a little intense about it. So when you say to me, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible, what do you mean by that? Let's talk about the New Testament and the Bible for a second. It's 27 books written by nine different authors. So what do you mean you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible? What do you mean by that? Every one of them is completely corroborated, consistent, and clear. And one more thing, this is how history works, right? Like when you study history in university, you look at a source and you decide, is it reliable, is it accurate? Is it corroborated, is it consistent, is it clear? If so, then these events occurred. But let's imagine that we decide, okay, we're not gonna use the Bible to prove the Bible, okay? Okay, let's go outside of the Bible for a second. There was a Roman historian named Tacitus. Tacitus wrote often about a man named Jesus Christ who inspired a movement called Christianity. There was a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger. I always get a kick out of that name because I wonder what they called him when he got older. I guess they still called him Pliny the Younger, but it doesn't really matter, I know that. Um, But he would write letters, and in his letters he would talk about this group of people called Christians. And they would meet on a specific day of the week and they would sing songs to someone named Jesus Christ, the man who actually existed. There was a first century historian named, a Jewish historian named Josephus. And and he talked at length about a man named Jesus Christ, Jesus from Nazareth, who lived, who died, and who his followers said rose again. Jesus existed. It's interesting when you think about it because John's writing his gospel years and years later. He's an old dude. In fact, when John wrote his gospel, he's the last living disciple. He's read through the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and he's kind of filling in the pieces the best that he can where needed. He doesn't spend a lot of time defending the fact that Jesus actually lived. That would have been absurd in the first century. Everybody knew that there was thousands and thousands and thousands of eyewitnesses that would have said, what do you, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he lived. But he goes on and on and on about the fact, yes, he died. He actually died. If you're joining us online or in person or in overflow today, there's one thing I know about you if you're new or newish. If you still have questions about this whole Jesus thing, there's something I know about you. There's something I love about you, by the way. You're a truth seeker. You're a truth seeker. And so what I want to suggest that you do, what I want to invite you to do, is I really want to ask you, hey, seek truth. There, there's catchphrases like, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible neat. Okay, that's fine. So can, can we seek truth? Can, can we seek truth? What is true? Jesus promised, by the way, in John chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You seek truth, you'll find him. Here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that there was a man named Jesus, fully man and fully God. He predicted his own death and resurrection, and then he pulled it off. Not only that, he did it. All of it, he did it. For you. See, I talked earlier about the test of corroboration of clarity and consistency. I want to give you one more C today. One more C would be the test of cost. What's the cost that was paid for those who believed in Jesus in, in the decades after he died and rose again? There were hundreds thousands of people who followed Jesus and they were put to death in incredibly painful ways. And at any moment, at any moment, they could have spared their own lives by saying this. Okay, well, Jesus didn't actually exist. Or Jesus didn't actually die. <laughs> you know, he didn't actually rise again, except they didn't deny him because it's true. And I wanna implore you as a truth seeker, keep seeking truth. He predicted his own death and his own resurrection, and then he pulled it off for you. That's a big deal. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Seems important for John to mention that Jesus was buried. Not only did he die, but he was buried. If you go further on in the Bible, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, he makes a point of saying, Christ Jesus died for your sins and was buried. In the early years after Jesus, there was a group called the Church Fathers and they wrote this thing called the Apostles' Creed. It goes like this. says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. So why is it so important that Jesus was buried? I think there's a few reasons. Number one, they don't bury you if you're not dead. It's pretty obvious, right? They, they don't bury you if you're not dead. They, they took, including the, the strips of linen and the spices, it was about 100 pounds of wrapping that they would have put around Jesus. They put him in the tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it. Why? Because he was dead. The second reason why it's important to note that Jesus was buried is because I told you last week that Jesus had to face everything we face so that he could restore everything we've lost. The lowest physical expression of the human condition is the grave. Jesus had to go to the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low. He faced everything we face so that he could restore everything we've lost. I say that to you because I need you to know that no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done or where you find yourself today, Jesus loves you there is no place that he wouldn't go. There is no price that he wouldn't pay for you. Now, the third reason why it's probably important to note that Jesus was buried is because he was buried in a place that people knew about. This was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man. Many people knew where that was. I mention that to you because Jesus died on the cross, and in the decades that followed, when when, when when the movement of Christianity was spreading all over the world, Anyone could have stopped the movement by going, hey, let's just go back to the tomb I'm gonna to produce the body, but they couldn't because Jesus was alive. I wanna to end today by talking about a guy who I really like, a guy named Nicodemus. The last time we talked at any length about Nicodemus was back in John chapter three. A couple things that you need to know about him, he was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were really, really religious Jews. They did not like Jesus at all. See, Jesus came preaching a message of love and kindness, and it threatened their power and their privilege and their prestige. So the Pharisees opposed Jesus at every turn. In fact, they ended up being largely responsible for his death. And yet Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but there was something about Jesus that captivated him. Back in John chapter three, we read that Nicodemus actually snuck to see Jesus under the cover of darkness. And there's this famous conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus have. Jesus says to Nicodemus, hey Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? That makes, I must be what? Born again? And So Jesus restates, he says, okay, how about this? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Nicodemus, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the whole world would be saved through him. And we don't really know exactly what becomes of Nicodemus after that conversation. Like, does he immediately in that moment decide that he's going to be born again, that he's going to put his faith in Jesus, that he's going to follow him? We don't really know. If so, we know that he was pretty secretive about it. Maybe on the other hand, he leaves that conversation with Jesus back in John chapter 3, and he's like, man, that's some stuff to think about. I really, really got to mull that over. But right here in John chapter 19, we see Nicodemus has gone public with it. He's made his decision. When he decides he's going to show up and bury Jesus, that's it. Pharisees aren't going to like it. He's made his choice. He's a follower of Jesus now. So what changed in Nicodemus? I would suggest what changed was the cross. The power of the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. He hung there for three hours at noon. Darkness descended across the entire land. There's a Greek historian named Phlegon that said this. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which is 33 AD, by the way, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun and it became night in the sixth hour of the day, which is noon. So that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Can you imagine being there? Jesus hung there on the cross from nine until noon. At noon, everything went dark, so dark that you could see the stars in the sky. For three more hours, Jesus hung on the cross until he breathed his last breath. And in that moment that he breathed his last breath, the earth shook. There was this uh, veil in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that hung there, and what it represented was a separation between the holiness of God and his people, a separation. In the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, the earth shook, and that veil was torn in two. The message is pretty clear. Because of Jesus, Nothing, 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 nothing can separate God and his people anymore. The minute that Jesus died, a Roman soldier cried out, surely this man was the son of God. Surely this man was the son of God. And I'm not sure it was just the darkness or the earth shaking. I think it was the power of the cross. It was the power of Jesus on the cross. As Jesus hung on that cross, the Bible says he kept saying, he kept saying, he kept Saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He kept saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they jeered and they mocked and they spit on him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive the religious Jews that orchestrated my death. Father, forgive them. Forgive everyone for all time. Forgive you. Forgive me. Forgiveness and then he asked for a drink. They gave him a sponge with wine vinegar on it. He drank and then he said this, it is finished. The statement's pretty clear, Jesus was saying everything that needed to be done for your salvation has been completed. Everything that needed to be done for your forgiveness has been completed. Everything that needed to be done for you to be born again, to go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, has been completed, everything that you needed to step into eternal life has been completed. So now, so now, the move is yours. I'm gonna give you a two minute warning. In two minutes, I'm gonna give you the chance to be born again. I'm gonna give you the chance to put your faith in Jesus. Everything that he needed to do, he's done. Now the move is yours, would you accept it? You say, I don't know everything yet. I'll tell you what you can know today. That it was God's idea that you would be online right now. That it's God's idea that you're here right now. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, predicted predicted his death and resurrection and then pulled it off for you. Know that. It's an interesting thing though. So there's this moment, right? when you're born again, when you don't know everything yet, but you know enough to put your faith in Jesus. Your eternity is secure. Your eternity is secure. You're gonna experience eternal life, right? Amazing. But, but, but there's this juncture, there's this time period between the second that you're born again and the moment that you step into eternity. What, do we, what, what would we call that? The rest of your life. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a good way to put it. The rest of your life. God's plan for you is that you would start that eternal life that he's called you into right now. Don't wait. God's plan for you is that you would step into amazing right now and not settle for ordinary. But I know something about Jesus. He's not a bully. He's not gonna drag you into amazing. He's gonna invite you one next step at a time. One next step at a time. So that brings me to Baptism. Baptism. The Bible says believe and be baptized. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been born again last week, 27 minutes ago, 45 years ago, and you have yet to be baptized as a believer, that is your next step. That's your next step. Jesus isn't gonna yank you into amazing. He's gonna invite you. And here's the point. You have to come to a point in your life when you say, Jesus, I don't know everything, but I know enough. I know what you did for me. I know how much you love me. I'm willing to trust you to take one next step at a time. Believe and be baptized. See, there's people here today watching online today, and you would say, man, I'm just confused in my life. Just got this state of confusion, and I really want clarity, but I can't find it, you know? I don't know whether to go right or go left. I'm always in this state of confusion and I really, really want clarity. Jesus offers clarity, but he's not gonna pull you into it. He's not gonna shove you into it. He's gonna invite you into it. How do you get there? You get there one next step at a time. There's people here today and you would say, "My, my, my biggest struggle is I just feel defeated, I just feel lost. Like, there's all these things that I want to do, but I don't do them. There's a person I want to be, but I'm not that person, you know? There's things that I don't want to do, but I keep doing them. And I just need strength, and I need victory in my life. I'm sick of losing. Here's the thing Jesus offers strength, and He offers victory, but He's not a bully. He's not gonna yank you into victory. He's not gonna yank you into strength. How are you gonna get there? You're gonna get there by trusting him one next step at a time. Does that make sense? There's people here today and you would say, man, my my emotions, it's hard, you know? I'm overcome by discouragement, I'm overcome by fear, overcome by anxiety, I'm overwhelmed by depression. Anger, 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 anger is in the driver's seat of my life and I keep doing stuff that I regret. I hate it. For some of you, it's addiction. You just feel broke down. And what you want more than anything else, in the midst of all the chaos, in in, in the midst of all the noise, you just want peace. You want to move towards peace and stillness and calm and life. And Jesus offers all of that He's not gonna yank you into it, though. He's gonna invite you into it one next step at a time. See, I think what our world desperately needs, if you want me to be completely honest, and so far I have been, so let's continue. You know what our world really needs? They need followers of Jesus who actually trust him. Followers of Jesus who aren't perfect, but they're progressing. Like they're becoming the people they were created to be, the husbands that they were created to be, the wives they were created to be, the parents, the siblings, the friends they were created to be, that would change the world. How in the world do we get there? We get there just by trusting in one next step at a time. My wife Corinne and I got baptized in our early 20s. I remember sitting in church and the pastor said, believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized. And it hit me, you know, because I had never been baptized as a believer. And I remembered in that moment that my mom and dad had me baptized as a little tiny baby. They told me that, you know? And I just think what a beautiful thing for them to do, incredible. But the pastor said, if you read the Bible, it says believe and be baptized. And so I thought, okay, well now the next step is mine. Like the prayer, the prayer that was evident by my parents when they had me baptized as a little baby, now it's my time to, to step into that prayer, to step into that faith and get baptized. Corinne and I had been married for about a year at that point. And to be completely honest with you, our marriage wasn't very good. We loved Jesus and we loved each other, but it was so hard. Now I'm not gonna speak for Corinne. I'll speak for myself though. I know my part of it. I was really insecure and I was really angry. My anger was never directed at Corinne, but it was always directed at me, and it did a lot of damage. We got baptized together. And I will tell you honestly, it changed the course of our life. Of course it did. It's just faith. Coming to the point of your life when you say, Jesus, in light of everything you've done for me, I'm going to trust you enough to take my next step. So I'm going to ask you to be thinking about that. If you signed up, we've got a bunch of people signed up to this service to get baptized. We had to double tank it. That's, that's the, We wanted with a double tank look this time, okay, which is going to require a lot of attention, especially from the guys who aren't great at multitasking. This is coming up in a minute. But if you already signed up to get baptized, get ready. However, if you've been a follower of Jesus for two weeks or 45 years, and you have yet to step up and believe and be baptized. Today's your day. We got everything you need, right? We got towels, we got clothes, we got dippity-doo if you really need it, okay? So whatever, I don't know why I said that. We probably do though. I'm pretty sure we do. Do we? Okay. I hope we do. Um, oh yeah, get baptized. One next step at a time. I wanna I want, move into clarity. Oh, okay, one next step at a time. I wanna move into victory. Okay, one next step at a time. I wanna move into strength. Okay, one next step at a time. I wanna move into peace and hope and joy. Okay, one next step at a time. That's how you get there. Okay, I told you, two minute warning. Close your eyes and bow your heads, please, everybody. John said it best. This testimony is true. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus loves you. There's no price he wouldn't pay. There's no place he wouldn't go. He loves you so much that he died for you, he rose again for you. Everything that needed to be done for you to step into eternal life that could start right now has been done. The next move is yours. If today is the day, if this is the moment where you take hold of what he's already done for you, you accept it, that you become born again with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, just raise your hand right now, nice and high, because I wanna pray for you. Amazing. If you're watching online and it's safe to do so, I'd love it if you could raise your hand too. There's something powerful about that outward expression of the inward commitment. That's great. If your hands are up, you can put your hands down. I'm going to pray out loud and I just invite you to pray silently along with me. So, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness. I accept it today. Jesus, I pray that you give me the strength to follow you, one next step at a time. Become everything that you created me to be. I love you, I trust you, I'm thankful for today, I'm thankful for tomorrow, I'm thankful for forever. In your name I pray, amen, amen, let's celebrate. So the band's going to play. The baptism team is hanging out right here. If you did not sign up, but today is the day that you're going to take that step, you're going to walk up. They're going to ask you one question. Here's the question they're going to ask you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He lived, died, and rose again for you. You're going to answer yes, and then we're going to dunk you. If you have a checkered past, we're going to hold you under for a really long time. I love you guys. Talk to you soon.